0: And I think we're going to start, actually, by uh, reading our passage together, and what we find in our passage is that the people of Israel stood for the reading of God's Word, so we're going to do the same. We're going to start at the very end of chapter 7, actually, the very end of verse 73, and we're going to read most of uh, chapter 8. So would you stand with me as we read the Word of God together? the very end of chapter 7, verse 73. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, and on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Melkaijah, Hashem, Hashabadana, Zachariah, and Meshulam. I meant to skip that verse. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Jam, and Aku, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kaleida, Hazariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructed the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send them to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. God, we come today with gratitude that we can open your word. We pray that as we uh, learn from it this morning that it would not return empty. We know that is your promise. We ask, Lord, that it would be living and powerful among us today, that your spirit would use your word to change our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Three things I want us to see from this passage this morning. The first is this, that God provides his word, or we'll say it this way, the provision of God's word. After decades in exile, the people return. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the city walls. And then they begin to rebuild their community through the word of God. And after all of these decades the word of God was still present. It was still available to them. So in verse 1, we see the people telling Ezra, bring out the book of the law of Moses. And then we see that that's exactly what happens. He opens the book. Ezra opens the book in the presence of all the people. We see in verse 5, he opens the book and all the people could see him as he stood on that platform. And all the people stood. The, The word of God was still there. And not only was the word of God there, but God had raised up Ezra and the Levites to be the teachers of the law. And this is the way God is. God has always, in his providence and his sovereignty, ensured that his word is available to people. It's really the story of creation in the very beginning. God is a God who speaks, and he spoke creation into existence that's an important point to understand God is a communicating God he said let there be light and there was light and then he created human beings who were made in his image and so God is a communicating God we are communicating people and God's intention was that that we would have this dialogue between him the creator and us the created God spoke to Adam and Eve, and he explained to them, this is what I want you to do, I want you to to be my overseers, be my representatives in this beautiful world that I have made. God spoke. But then we come to Genesis 3, and we find another voice in the garden, the voice of Satan. And he begins to question the voice of God. He questions the words of God, and he convinces Adam and Eve to disbelieve the words of God. Did God really say And of course, God had said, you shouldn't eat of this certain tree, this certain fruit. On the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Did God really say? And Satan's great victory was getting the people that God had made to disbelieve and disregard God's word. Have you ever noticed that that's the tension and the battle that's going on in every life, in every human life? Perhaps you've seen it in your own life that there's a word that God speaks to you and then there's an enemy who tries to undermine the word of God. It's the story of redemption. God speaks, man disregards God's word, and yet God continues to speak. I love these words from later in Genesis 3, where the Lord calls out to the man. This is after Adam and Eve have sinned and now they're hiding in the garden away from the voice and the presence of God and God is still calling out. Don't you love that? This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of history that God relentlessly speaks. I mean, imagine if you were God. And we see this even in our own relationships when someone doesn't listen to us or disregards us. We often give them the silent treatment. Well, if that's the way you're going to be then I just won't talk to you. And praise the Lord, he's not like that. That even when we disregarded, disobeyed, disrespected his word God continued to speak and that's the story of redemption. In fact Hebrews 1 tells us that God has spoken all through history and many times and in many ways but has spoken in these last days through do you know who it is? Through his son. Jesus is the ultimate word of God. John 1 calls him the word of God. And so God is always speaking and he speaks this word of redemption. Think about the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and why did the people end up in exile, in captivity in Babylon? The reason they ended up in exile is because they went through the exact same uh, pattern that Adam and Eve did. God had given the people of Israel his word. They had the law of Moses. God had sent them prophets and yet they disregarded his word, and they began to worship other gods, and they stopped following the commands of God, and they stopped following the worship of God, and offering the sacrifices of God, and it led them to a place of destruction, just as it did for Adam and Eve, just as it does for us. When as human beings we disregard God's word, it's his word that makes us thrive, that allows us to be all that God meant us to be. And this is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. God is bringing them back from that place of destruction, and he's going to use his word now to bring a greater restoration. It wasn't just about the temple. It wasn't just about the city walls. His people needed their hearts restored by his word. God loves to provide this word. It's interesting to look back in history and see the ways that God has used people to ensure that his word is known. In fact, that's really what a missionary is. It's someone who's taking the word of God to a place in the world where it is less known. Praise God for people like that. In our own English language, it's fascinating to trace the history of how we ended up with an English Bible. There were two men, one uh, was named Wycliffe, the other was named Tyndale. Wycliffe came first, Um, Tyndale came about 100 years later. William Tyndale believed, contrary to the prevailing church of the day, that everyone should have God's word in their own language. But the Catholic church of the time did not support that, didn't want people to have God's word in their own language. So Tyndale literally risked his life to translate the word of God into the common English language of that time. And ultimately he was martyred. Eventually they strangled him to death And then they burned his body at the stake because of what he'd done in translating the Bible. We need to thank God for people like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, uh, his name is used for a well-known mission agency. Does anyone know of uh, the mission agency called Wycliffe? And you can see on the screen here that their primary mission is to translate the Bible into other languages. This is such an amazing thing. I am so amazed. We had a young guy at Gory, who, as he came through high school, realized what he really wanted to do was to become a Bible translator. So he ended up going to a Bible college in Toronto named Tyndale. Remember that guy? And now his goal has always been to work at Wycliffe. To go somewhere in the world where a a language group, a people group, doesn't have the Bible. And to translate that. So this is fascinating because many of these uh, people groups that don't have the Bible, they don't even have their language in writing. They don't even have an alphabet. So we've followed, uh, I know here, we've followed ethnos missionaries or new tribes missionaries over many years. And it's amazing what these people do to go into a tribe where they have their own specific language. The missionary doesn't know the language. They go in and spend months, years learning the language so that they can tell the good news of Jesus to these people. But as they're doing that, they're also learning to write that language. No one's ever written it before. There's no alphabet. Those people don't read and write their language. They just speak it. So the missionaries not only learn the language to preach the gospel, then they're learning the language so that they can write it so that they can eventually uh, write the scriptures in that language. So they teach the people the gospel and then they teach the people to read their own language and then they give the people the Bible in that language. I cannot imagine a more difficult task, but God has raised people up to do this, And hundreds and hundreds of missionaries around the world are doing this work today. Young people, if you're trying to, older people, if you're trying to figure out what to do with the rest of your life, this couldn't, I can't think of a more noble thing than this. To be a, a, an instrument that God uses to bring his word to people that don't have it in their own language. This is the heart of God always providing his word, relentlessly speaking to people who've rejected what he said in the past, but God, as a God of grace and redemption, brings his word to bear again and again. And that's what we need here today. So God provides his word. We see that here in the story. He raises up Ezra and the Levites to be the teachers of his law. The second thing we see in the story is the priority of God's word. I'm not sure why Nehemiah 8 takes place here. I'm not sure why this story doesn't happen sooner. Why didn't this happen when the first peoples returned uh, from exile? But, but here it is here. And what I love is in verse 1, it's not Ezra calling the people together and saying, okay, now you're going to listen to me read the, the scriptures. Now you're going to hear me teach the scriptures. No, it's the people. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded for Israel. you you got to love that. This is the people of God collectively saying, we want to hear God's word. I've heard stories of this, of ethnos missionaries who are over somewhere in Papua New Guinea in the jungle and some tribesman from another tribe, another language group, comes and says, we want to hear God's talk. This should be true of us. As the people of God, we should have this tremendous hunger To hear and to know, to read, to study, to be taught the word of God. This should be true of us because the scripture says that if we're followers of Jesus, we are to be disciples, we are to be taught everything that Jesus commanded his disciples and we're to make disciples and teach them to obey everything that God has commanded so here the people of Israel, for whatever reason, in this moment, are recognizing their need. I wonder if it, it if it was chapter five that we studied last week when the rich people were taking advantage of the poor and charging interest and getting richer off the poverty of those who didn't have food. And it was, was it Ezra and Nehemiah saying, No, no, the, the scriptures say, let, let us show you here, scriptures say don't do this. I showed you a number of scriptures from Exodus and and Leviticus last week where the Scripture said, don't charge interest to your own countrymen. Don't make slaves of your own countrymen. It was right there in God's law. Was that the occasion when the people realized, we we don't understand, we don't know what God has said. We We need you to teach us. Tell us what the Word of God says. So all of these people come together. I suspect there were literally thousands of people gathered to hear the word of God. Uh, We see in verse 4 that a wooden platform had been built. And then as Ezra begins to read, there's all these other officials with big scary names standing on the platform with him uh, to represent the solemnness of the occasion, the, the seriousness of what was taking place there. This is the priority of God's word everyone was there, men and women. It says all who could understand. I assume that means children, younger people who were old enough to hear and understand what was being taught. They all gathered. And then Ezra opens the book and we find that everybody stands up at the end of verse 5. Everybody stood up. There was a sense of reverence, of, of expectation for what was about to, to happen in that moment. This is the priority Of God's Word. I fear for us, and I mentioned this last week, that the Bible is so available to us in so many formats. How many Bibles do we have sitting on shelves in our homes? And we can go online and find English translations absolutely free to us. If you've never used Bible Gateway, you need to to try that out. You can open Bible Gateway and choose from a huge number of English Bibles, and you can look up words, and all of the verses from the Bible with that word will flash up on your screen. It's a tremendous tool. We have all of these resources. We have so many English-speaking Bible teachers, and yet perhaps we of all peoples in the world who have so much access to the, to the Word of God are the ones who neglect it the most. Is that true of us? Is it still a priority? Is God's word still a priority to us? God says this in the book of Isaiah, these are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. May that be true of Wallenstein Bible Chapel. That's why we're doing, as Andreas has mentioned, a 40-day Bible reading challenge. And isn't it gracious that uh, uh, we're doing this over eight weeks? There's more than 40 days in eight weeks. That's so that there's a few grace days in there for you. I really hope everyone will take one of these. If you've got kids, take this. If your kids can read, they can have one. There's a place to take notes. And there's questions. So those of you who are in small groups, you may be uh, reviewing these questions in your small group. But we really want to lay that challenge before all of us. Wouldn't it be encouraging to be reading this together? And when we meet people from the church family day to day as we're going through this, we can say, hey, did you read that uh, in the Bible reading plan this morning? This needs to be a priority for us as well. So there's a provision of God's word. There's the priority of God's word. And then I finally want us to see the power of God's word. Do you see what happens in this chapter as the word of God is read. Starting in verse 6, notice what happens. Ezra Ezra praised the Lord. Having read or starting to read, preparing to read, he praises the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Do you know what Amen means? Amen means it's true. That's That's a wonderful, someone came to me last week and said, are we allowed to say Amen here? With that, Rick. It's an interesting word because actually, I looked up amen in Hebrew and it means it is true. And if you look up amen in Greek, it's the same word. It means it is true. And if you say it in English, it means it is true. And so, as God's word was read, the people of God could collectively raise their voices together and say amen. And yes, that is allowed. And then we read, Ezra praises God, verse 6, praised the Lord, the great God. People lifted their hands, that's allowed too. And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Reading the word of God, if we're reading it properly. Now, I, I've had times in my life where I was told, you should read the Bible every day. Okay, so I read the Bible every Read chapter a day. Keeps the devil away. And wasn't really reading with a great deal of thoughtfulness, wasn't really expecting anything to jump off the page, just wanted to get my check mark for the day. And that's not the way we read the Bible. We read the Bible expectantly, and as we read the words on the page, if we're reading properly, engaging mind and heart, this is what it produces it produces praise and worship. Here's Ezra praising. Here's the people lifting their hands. By the way, this is a really simple way to remember the difference between praise and worship. We usually say those words together. We should praise and worship. Yes. Praise is always upward. So we see here the people, they're they're saying or shouting, Amen, and they're lifting their hands up to God. So that's what the word praise means. It's the idea of reaching up to God, of of spilling over like a fountain, of, of celebrating in an upward direction who God is and what he's done for us. That's praise. And the Bible does that. As we read the Bible and think about what it says, and as we read about who God is and what he's done for us, if we're reading it carefully, we're, we're going to praise. Like It should just break out. Uh, one of the best pieces of advice I ever read was from uh, George Mueller famous guy who had all these orphanages in the 1800s. And what he would say is that he always read the Bible and prayed at the same time. He didn't take time to pray and then, okay, stop that. Now I'm going to read my Bible. What he found was that his prayers flowed out of his reading. Prayers of confession would flow out of his reading. Prayers of praise would flow out of his reading. Uh, prayers of worship would flow out of his reading. Prayers of confession, thankfulness, all of these things would flow out of the reading of God's word. That's what we're seeing here. Praise is always a reaching up to God, a celebrating. Worship is always the other direction. Praise goes up, worship goes down. We literally see it. We see this so often in the Bible. Come let us worship, the Psalms say, and bow down. And that's what we see here. That's what worship is. Praise, I go up. I celebrate God, worship, I go down, face to the ground. This is reverence. This is humility before God. And that's what reading the word of God will do to us. We'll have moments of praise, celebrating who God is, what he's done. We will have moments of worship where we are on our face before God, where our hearts are deeply humbled, where we recognize our need to confess before God. That, by the way, is the next thing we see here. Verse 9, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them, All this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Because that's what ended up happening as all of these hundreds, maybe thousands of people gathered and heard the word of God, is there was a collective cry going on. There was a weeping and a mourning. You ever been in a maybe in a funeral or maybe, maybe in, a, in a context of someone preaching and you hear the sniffles and you hear the soft murmur of weeping going on? And you could hear that throughout this crowd because as the people heard the word of God, they heard over and over again recognize that they had not been honoring the Lord. They had not been obeying the law of God. Remember what verse 1 had said? And the people call Ezra, teacher of the law, bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So every verse that was read, it seemed like they were recognizing, oh, there's a whole other thing that I've failed to do or something that I uh, that, that I shouldn't have been doing, that I was doing, and so there was this mourning going on. And there is a place for this. I know in our culture, we're deeply aware of people that, Uh, and and even believers who struggle with shame there is a place for godly sorrow we know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 Paul writing to the Corinthian church and he references a previous letter and he says I I know that I caused you sorrow but there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance he says in that chapter there's a worldly sorrow doesn't lead to anything good So when we sorrow over something that's gone wrong in our life or a sin in our life, worldly sorrow is we wallow in in self-pity. Worldly sorrow is I'm so frustrated that I got caught. Worldly sorrow is I don't like the consequences of my sin. But godly sorrow is when we reverence God, we recognize his holiness, and we bow before him humbly as a God who redeems and forgives And so we get low before him and we confess our sins and we repent of our sins. There is a place for that. And that's what God's word will do. If we're reading God's word sincerely and honestly, there will be moments where we have godly sorrow. When's the last time that happened for you as you read God's word, that you were confronted, God's spirit put his finger on an issue in your life through The word of God and you felt that godly sorrow, that mourning, that confession and repentance. It should be true. It should happen as we read God's word. But not only sorrow, but joy. And so the leaders here encourage the people, this is a day of holiness. This is a day for joy as we hear God's word. And of course, the word of God produces this joy in us. Verse 10, that famous verse Nehemiah says, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's such a great verse, such a great concept. The power of our lives as believers often comes in the joy of the Lord. Our positive influence on others towards Christ comes when we are able to be joyful in the Lord. And the word of God should inspire this deep spiritual joy in us because we recognize who God is and what he's done for us. It's the word of God that assures us that we are followers of Christ, that we are safe in Christ. It's the word of God that assures us of all the future hope and promises that we have. And those things can bring us deep joy. So it produces the joy of the Lord. Verse 12, all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. This is the power of God's word to produce joy in our lives. That's the power of God's word to produce obedience. Of course, obedience is never a legalistic kind of thing when we consider God's heart, God's intent for his word. The Bible is not primarily a rule book that we are meant to keep certain commands and get our check mark for the day. It's, uh, it produces an obedience that unites us with God and with God's character. That's the idea here of the Word of God. Is As we read the Word of God, it's literally an extension of God himself. The Word of God is not separate from God. It's not something that we worship separate from God. But it's also not something that we take away from God and say, well, God is here and God's word is here and what we really need is God. We're not sure we need God's word. No, the word of God produces an obedience that unites us with God and makes us more like him. And that's what we see happening here. So as they're reading the scriptures, they realize, oh, it's the first of the seventh month and they realize that's when we're supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles or some would call it the Feast of Booths. So that's what's happening in these uh, final verses of the chapter uh, they realize this is the time to celebrate this is a, this is an annual feast and verse 16 says so the people went out <clears throat> and and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs this was kind of an interesting feast but it was meant to memorialize their escape their leaving Israel and dwelling in the wilderness. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness and provision for them. So they literally, they heard the command of God describing the feast of tabernacles and they said we will do it. So they encouraged each other and they all did this together and they made their temporary shelters and they celebrated these seven days of this feast. Notice verse 17, the whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters lived in them from the days of Joshua until the day the Israelites until that day the Israelites had not celebrated it like this and their joy was very great it produces obedience and as I said it's, a, it's an obedience that unites us with God When we come to God's word we come to God himself we hear his voice we read his words this is his heart this is his mind to us why wouldn't we long to know God's word? It's God's word that unites us to him. There are two major errors that many have made over the years when it comes to God's word. One is, it's the error that the Pharisees made in the time of Jesus. They took the law of Moses and they, they scanned it, they, they, they searched it for any hint of any kind of command, and they pulled that out, and they made a massive list of rules Jesus, of course, called them hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. He said, the scriptures actually testify of me. They had completely missed the heart of God in the scriptures. This was legalism. Take the scriptures away from God, separate it from God, and it's legalism. It's not God's intent. But then there are many liberal Christians throughout the centuries who have sought to take the scripture away from God. They've sought to say that God is good, we like God, we like Jesus, but his, the, the Bible is old-fashioned. We don't, we don't need God's word, it's, it's out of date. And so they pull the scriptures away. We'll, they say, we'll keep God, but we don't need the Bible. And that's idolatry. Because what we're saying is we will worship a God of our own choosing, a God of our own making. When we take the Bible away from God, we no longer have the God of the Bible. It's so crucial that when we come to Scripture, we see them as an extension of God himself. This is the power of God's Word. It's alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart so ladies and gentlemen do we recognize the great provision of God's word that we have what a gift in our own language with those who can help us to understand it this is God's provision to us is it a priority is it a priority to us every day that we would spend time in God's word may our 40 day challenge be a reminder of that And are we seeing the power of God's word unleashed in our lives? Are we seeing changed lives? Are we seeing the power of redemption making us different, making us more like Jesus as God uses his word uh, to completely change our hearts and our lives? May it be true of us as a Wallenstein family. So we're going to sing, and then Andreas is going to come and close. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word, giving us your written word, and giving us, Jesus, your living word. And Father, I pray that you would create in us a hunger for your word and a hunger for passing your word on to those who don't have it. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.